All right, let's go ahead and take our copy of the confession first, and then also have your Bible ready. And if you'd like to turn over to Romans chapter number 8, uh, Romans chapter number 8, and then also chapter number 6 of our confession, we're going to, we're going to skip ahead for just this week. Uh, then we're going to come back, um, and you'll see here in a moment why we're go- doing it this way. But in paragraph 2 of chapter 6 of the Confession of Faith, the chapter of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof, paragraph 2 reads this way. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Now we've been dealing with the events before the fall over the last number of weeks. And of course the events before the fall contained really three main topics or main areas we've been dealing with. We've dealt with perfection, obligation, and then probation. And of course, as we learned about perfection, we learned that God had created man or Adam in an upright, but remember, it was a changeable condition. He gave him an obligation, which was that God made a covenant with Adam, which was the covenant of works. And then we dealt with probation, where God tested Adam or man's ability to obey the commandment. So we know that God created Adam in this moral perfection, in uprightness. And we know that as part of that obligation, he was to keep that covenant. Now man, in his fallen condition, uh, now we move into at the fall, because Adam did not keep that commandment, uh, we are going to deal today really with uh, two, two headings on the same topic. Uh, We're going to be dealing this morning with, uh, at the fall, uh, God punished Adam and we in Adam according to the covenant. In other words, we were pronounced condemned. Condemnation is a word that at its true heart and at its greatest source is one of the most frightening words in all of Scripture. It's frightening because to be condemned means to be eternally separated or to have no opportunity of return without some remedy. And of course, I wanted us to turn to Romans chapter number 8 this morning because one of the great promises that the Apostle Paul gave to the church at Rome and the great promise when we studied through our exposition of the book of Romans is found there in Romans chapter number 8, verse number 1. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh." that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then... They that are in the flesh cannot 
please God. So at the fall, really what we see happening with Adam was first of all that Adam disobeyed by breaking the covenant. We might refer to Adam in that scenario as being insubordinate or insubordination. It's to know the law, to know what the law requires, but then to say, I will not obey that law. What man is doing when man is insubordinate is man is making a law unto himself. In other words, what he's doing is he is determining, I am my own law maker. I will determine what law I will abide by. I will determine what law I will ultimately fulfill. Now, because man is his own lawmaker, man, because he disobeys the laws of God, finds himself that the punishment for breaking the law of God is condemnation. So God punished Adam and we in him according to the covenant requirements. Now, what made Adam fall? Now, we're skipping ahead to paragraph 2, and we're going to come back to the end of paragraph 1 in the confession next week, dealing with why when it says, which God was pleased according to His wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to His own glory. We're going to deal next week with why did God permit sin? Why did God grant permission to Adam to sin? But this morning as we consider this, and we're dealing now with at the fall, and we've, we read that passage in, in Romans chapter number 8, and we're, we rejoice this morning that there says there is only one way to not be condemned, and that is found in Christ Jesus. The only way condemnation can be escaped is to be found in Christ Jesus. And there's a rejoicing that takes place in that by knowing that because we are in Christ, that gives us this wonderful hope. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at at Rome, he was reminding them, there is now no more separation from this God. There's no more separation because now you are in Christ Jesus. And that is, in fact, a very happy occasion. Now you have to remember, that one of the things that the church at Rome was dealing with is the same thing man deals with today. Uh, Rome had the idea of the false doctrine of universal amnesty. Or in other words, all people ultimately would not end up condemned. Now in other words, they might be condemned now, uh, but ultimately at the end of it all, when God settles all the accounts, when God settles the debts and the, what's owed and everything settles out, everybody universally will receive a pardon. Paul was writing Romans chapter number 8 on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to refute that idea. That there is no such thing as universal amnesty. There is no universal pardon unless you are in Christ Jesus. That, that That is your only escape of condemnation. So the idea here is, is everyone who is not in Christ Jesus is condemned. But everybody who's in Christ Jesus, who has the status of no condemnation, they are not condemned solely on the reason or the purposes because they're in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ Jesus is the sole reason why you and I that are in Christ are not condemned. He's the sole reason. But without Him, 
without Him, we are still under condemnation. Now verse number 8 of Romans, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. People can wash their old selves up. They can clean themselves up. They can decorate the outside. They can clothe it in new clothes. They can give it a greater education. Uh, they They can do many things, but here's what they cannot do. They cannot produce sovereign grace out of their inherent nature. Man cannot produce sovereign grace in any way, shape, or form. It is sovereign grace that saves a person from condemnation. That sovereign grace takes that old nature, doesn't dress up the old nature, it gives us a new nature. But no matter how much we try to display our best effort, we would still be under the condemnation of God. So why is it so important that we understand this idea of condemnation and insubordination? Now, back in our text when we were looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, we won't go back there and reread that. We've read that over the past couple of weeks, but that's the account of the fall itself. Now, the two main reasons that Adam fell... Now, again, we're, I know I'm, I'm oversimplifying a lot of things, and I, every week I'm trying to simplify this more and more and more without taking away from the deep, rich truth that we need to understand. There really, Adam's insubordination comes down, to, comes down to three different things. Pride, rebellion, and unbelief. Okay? So those three things is what a person who makes a law unto themselves, what they're doing. So Adam, in his insubordination, fell through his own pride, his own rebellion, and his own unbelief. What did he doubt? Well, first of all, we know that by reading the interaction between Adam and Eve, we realize that they both doubted the wisdom of God's command. Now, notice I didn't say they agreed or disagreed with it. What I'm saying is, is they doubted that God's command was wise. Now, there's, a, there's, an, there's an, and that is an essence that we, we, we're not going to deal with this morning. It, it's, it's different to just simply disagree with something, but it's another thing to doubt that the command is even wise. Pride lifted up their own opinion over God's declaration. They doubted God's truthfulness. And the certainty that there was a punishment that was going to come if they broke that covenant. And ultimately, in the most simplistic form, and you would find this even in the simplest of children's Bible stories, is that, and they would narrow it down more to this, is that they believe Satan over God. And that's still an aspect of this. But it was more than just believing Satan. What we're getting at is God is pointing out to us the reality of what's in man. Or maybe better stated, what man really is. So that's pride and unbelief in those categories. What is it to be in rebellion? Well, rebellion is any time we set our mind, rebellion with regard to God, is any time we set our mind against the mind of God. In other words, I say that my mind is going to be elevated over God's mind. 
what man is really doing is saying, I will not be ruled by God, but rather I am an independent being who makes my own choices. I make my own decisions as to what I will and will not obey. So what we have to say about what Adam did is, of course, everything, pride, unbelief, and rebellion are all sin. Okay? The sin was not just eating the fruit. That was the command, absolutely. But it's all the things, the characteristics that leads a man to sin. Where does pride come from? Where does unbelief come from? Where does rebellion come from? So sin, in its negative sense, is a transgression or a violation of the the divine law of God. So if I'm denying the divine law of God, what am I actually desiring? I am desiring to make my own laws. In other words, I become a law unto myself. I say, I am the law. I determine what I will and will not obey. So what does that mean? What does man ultimately desire? Man ultimately desires independence from God. When you look out on society and you wonder, how does man act? Why does man act the way he does? Because a man apart from God opening his eyes, his ultimate desire is to be away from God. Man tries to run away from God because of what God's being near God's, what implications that means. An acknowledgement of God acknowledges there's a law. Man has to be brought face to face with the reality that there's a law in which I am required to obey. A man who is in rebellion against God doesn't always do this consciously. In other words, we have in our mind's eye that rebellion is always this, I look at myself in the mirror and I get up and I say, I'm going to rebel against God today because it just feels right. It's, It's deeper than that. Um, If any time, if anything in my life, I live under the false assumption that I can do do whatever I please without answering to any standard, then I'm in a state of rebellion. No matter, and you take any part of life, if there's any part of life you think you can do whatever you want without answering to a standard that's been set, you're guilty of rebellion. See, we all have a standard of something. Society has standards. God has standards. God says, this is the law. This is what I require of you. And here's what you must do. And going back to condemnation. So what is man really about? Man at his very core is anti-law and he's anti-authority. That's playing out has played out in society for thousands of years. Man's anti-law, and he's anti-authority. And by the way, most of the times, authority and law go together. See, God gives a command because he's an authority, not because he's just the lawgiver. He gives it because he's God. So God doesn't say, first of all, I'm the lawgiver. No, he says, I'm giving you the law because I am authority. Authority has the right to determine the law. That's what God is saying. Because I'm God, Adam, I'm giving you the commandment. So sin, what is really sin? 
We might say sin is missing the mark. It's failing to live to the glory of God. All that is true. But if we simplify it even down one step further, sin is the desire to live without law and to live without authority. In other words, I will not live in authority that's outside of myself. Does that make sense? Anything outside of myself, I'm not going to acknowledge. Again, where does that come from? Because it's not the result of disagreement with the law. It has more to do with what man inherently is. See, a man can look at God's law and disagree with it. But what makes man disagree with the law? Even Paul said the law is good. There are laws in our country, in our world, that you say, I'm glad there's a law against that. I'm glad that the governments have decided this is the law. So when it comes to God, there, are, there is also this law. So all these things bring us to the idea of what happened then when Adam ultimately became a law unto himself. When he desired to live anti-law, anti-authority. God punished Adam according to the covenant requirement. And he condemned him for breaking it. He said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. So when Adam fell, and when Adam fell, all men fell, first of all, first of all, Adam lost communion with God. Now remember, God had made him perfect. He had put him in a perfect environment. He had made him morally upright and perfect. And yet, when he fell, he lost communion with God. After Adam sinned, we find him running from God. And we find him now hiding under a tree, hiding behind trees, trying to hide. It's a picture of what sin does. Sin separates man and alienates him from God. It keeps him from God. Think about this. Moments earlier, Adam was morally upright, pure, and now he thinks God can't see him hiding. Imagine that. Imagine being so overrun by your anti-law, anti-authority that now you think God can't see you. It's really quite remarkable. Uh, we, we, we begin to convince and fool ourselves into thinking God can't see my sin. God doesn't see my thoughts. God doesn't see my attitude. God doesn't see my actions. And yet, that's one of the characteristics of what man really is. You see, sin has made man, for lack of a better term, has made man lose his mind. Because of sin. Sin even decept deceptively destroys our ability to reasonably and rationally think through things. That person that says, I am reasonable and I am rational, many times is fooling himself. Because many times he's being driven by his own sin nature. Man is still in that same position that Adam was, trying to hide from God. Number two, as far as condemnation with Adam goes, Adam became dead in sin. Now that's what the Bible says. God said, in that day, or the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. That the death that God was talking about 
would immediately take place at the moment of their refusal to obey the commandments of God. It resulted in moral and spiritual death. Now what that means is, is that they would be separated from the source of all morality and all spiritual life. Separated from God. So you see this idea. They've lost communion. They've become dead in their sin. Even the Bible describes Adam's offspring or Adam's descendants as being dead in their trespasses and sins. So that in its inherent nature, to be dead in your trespasses and sins, literally means that the natural man apart from God is cut off. He's cut off from communion. So if a man is cut off, here's the reality, folks. If a man is cut off, it's impossible for him to know God. A cut off man or woman cannot know God because they're cut off. We have this false teaching going around that, yes, man is dead in his trespasses and sins, but he can choose to no longer be cut off. No, he's cut off. Which means he doesn't have access unless God grants him access. Now think about this. Not just being in the presence, but it's impossible for sinful man to know God. If he can't know God, he can't understand the spiritual things of God. If he can't understand the spiritual things of God, he doesn't even have a holy desire for godly things. See, we think the cut-off sinner is just going to wake up one day and say, I have a desire to know God. So a cut-off, dead in his trespasses and sins, natural man is suddenly going to desire communion with a God he doesn't know, even though he doesn't really understand the things of God. Why would he all of a sudden have a holy desire? He wouldn't. He's cut off. Sin cut that man off. To be cut off means that the indwelling Spirit of God is not present in that cut-off person. The unbelieving sinner today does not have a desire for God because he or she does not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. To be spiritually dead is best illustrated by a person dead physically. The, the illustration's been used so much it's a cliche when it comes to man. But a dead corpse, a dead man, cannot rise himself from the tomb. Now, we believe that physically. We, I mean, most of us, I think, I don't think any of you believe that a, once a person dies, they can raise themselves. None of you believe that, right? So if so, we're going to stop and change the lesson right there. So you don't believe that. Then why do we believe a dead man spiritually can raise himself? Why, why do we, where did we get the idea? Because we don't like the reality of what God's law actually says and what the Bible declares us to be. So to be condemned means that Adam fell under God's direct wrath and curse. Now we know that because when we read Genesis 3, we understand that after the fall, there's a, a curse that is pronounced upon them. 
He says in verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Go down to verse 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And he goes on and tells him that the ground would be covered in thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of his brow. This was all part of the curse of Adam's insubordination and breaking of the covenant. So man was cursed with death. Now man, who is originally created not to experience death because of sin, is now going to experience physical death. But at the moment he sinned, he was then experiencing spiritual death. Right now, a person who is outside of the body of Christ, who is outside of being in Christ Jesus, is spiritually dead. And ultimately, if they die in that condition they will ultimately experience eternal death. Adam, because of his disobedience, is now subject to the wrath of God. So I want you to get the picture. At this moment in history, Adam is now subject in himself to the full wrath of God. Adam is standing as the representative who is now subject to the full wrath of God. Since Adam has nothing of himself to offer to God, he has no merits of his own, he stands what? Condemned. So what he needs is a law keeper. He needs somebody to take his place. In Adam, all men fell. So at this point in history, again, before the fall, at the fall, after the fall, we're now in the realm of at the fall. At this moment in time, Adam is standing fully subject to the full wrath of God. God curses him, curses the ground he walks on, curses the ground he works with. And since the penalty of the covenant not only involved just man, but it also cursed all of creation. So when Adam fell, it wasn't just a curse on man, it was a curse on all of creation. So when we talk about redemption in Christ... And this goes back to Romans 8, if you want to turn there again, verse number 19, we see that this remedy, Christ as the remedy, not only involves the redemption of man, but it also deals with the redemption of creation itself. Romans 8, verse 19. I looked at verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The work of Christ, I mentioned this last week, is nothing less than Christ's undoing what the first Adam did. And doing, in addition, what Adam failed to do. 
He reversed the curse. Does that make sense? He reversed it. So what did Adam do? He became totally depraved. Now notice the order here. The depravity came as a result of the sin. Came as a result. When man fell, sin corrupted his entire being. Sin doesn't just affect physical. Sin affects your mind, your will, and your emotions. However, understand this. Total depravity. Again, this is often misdefined. Total depravity does not mean that a man's faculties, his mind, his will, and his emotions were rendered inoperative or unable to work anymore or that he became as sinful as he could have become. That's not what total depravity means. It doesn't mean that he lost all opportunity of rendering or using his free will. And total depravity does not mean that he's as bad as he could be. So what does it mean? Well, people have often asked the question, how can someone be totally depraved when they still have a conscience? How can someone have total depravity if they still feel conviction? How can somebody be totally depraved if they still have a mind to think with and a will to choose and emotions to feel with? Because the answer, that's not the answer. The answer is that total depravity does not mean that man lost his faculties. So what does man still have? He still has a conscience. No matter how far man falls and moves, he has a conscience, but understand something, even his conscience is fallen. In other words, sin also affects the conscience. What does that mean? That means your conscience can be deceived. A lot of people say, well, my conscience isn't bothering me. Well, guess what? If you're outside of Christ, your conscience can deceive you. That's why we're not really to trust our conscience as being our guide. Now, in our, in our believing state, in our regenerated state, in our converted state, God uses our conscience now to direct us and prevent us and keep us. A lot of times, the conscience is that stop sign that comes up initially. It's a gift. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy about be wary of not allowing your conscience to be seared. He was talking to a believing man. Don't let your conscience be seared. Why? Because even in our, not, even in our saved state, we can still have a seared conscience. But in the non-believer, that conscience can be completely silenced. But we have to understand that even a sinner often has conscience. But the conscience can lead us the wrong way. Remember, the Apostle Paul, before he, was, before he was the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he said by his own words, I'm doing God a great service by trying to destroy the people of this way. Paul's conscience was telling him as Saul, I'm doing a good thing. Think about that for a moment. People who've persecuted the church throughout the years thought they were doing the world a great service. 
because their conscience was deceiving them. So man still has a conscience. Man still has a mind. But think about it. His mind is not inoperative, but his mind is in rebellion to God. He refuses to subject himself to God's commands. We read that in Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now you have to understand, some have taught Romans 8 as that Paul was teaching this about the carnal and the non-carnal Christian, that he was flipping the light switch on and off, on and off, on and off. So one time I'm, I'm, I'm carnal, the next minute I'm not. No, he's dividing between the two. He's dividing that those who are not in Christ are not subject to the law of God. In other words, they don't want the law of God. Romans 8 is not meant to be an off and on. It's meant to declare that there's a difference between those that are in the flesh and those that are in the Spirit. And the ones that are in the Spirit act one way. Those that are in the flesh act another way. Those in the flesh is a reflection or a, a demonstration of those who are outside the body of Christ. So the carnal mind is enmity against God. So what does that mean? That means his mind is not even going to make proper conclusions. His arguments are based upon sinful thoughts. Why? Because his mind, his carnal mind, is enmity against God. The most frustrating conversation you'll ever have is trying to argue with an unbeliever. But here's what's happening. Their mind is enmity against God. So why do you think the warfare is so strong? The warfare is strong because they are against the law of God. If you're having a cordial conversation about spiritual things as a believer with a non-believer, and you're talking about the Word of God and it's going well, something's going on there. Because the carnal mind doesn't even want to be subjected to the law of God. So human thoughts, what we assume, our logic, before our eyes are opened, we're all hostile to God. We don't want it. Sin distorts. Sin through the mind even comes down to where our understanding and our intellect are even affected. So man, even in his total depravity, still has a conscience, he still has a mind, and he still has free will. Okay? This idea that says if you teach on total depravity that you believe man does not have a free will, that's not what we believe at all. Man still has a free will to choose. But because of the fall, you can't argue from this from Scripture, because of the fall, that will is in bondage and subject to his sinful nature. In other words, what's happening, it's going to choose what it wants. Your free will is going to choose what it wants. The will of man is not neutral. Man's will, because of sin, is wicked. It wants to be independent, anti-law, anti-God. If, if you preach a gospel that says, listen, I would just rather leave it all to man to choose what to do with God. Do you know what would happen? nobody would ever be saved. 
Because nobody's choosing God for themselves. Nobody. You say, I would have. No. You could not have been put in a more perfect environment, more perfect situation than Adam was. And even Adam didn't choose God. So why do we think that it's more, and somebody would say this, it's, it's more comforting to me to know that God just gives man a choice to what he'll do with God. I don't know how you find comfort in that. Because apart from God changing man out of his totally depraved state, man does not have a hope of redemption. doesn't have a hope to escape condemnation. It's by the blessing and glory to God when someone says, I've repented and I believed in Christ, we give God all the glory for that. We don't say, I'm glad you chose God. No, you say, I'm glad and I praise God because He has opened your eyes to the truth. And folks, when you talk to somebody who's been saved by the grace of God and they know it, it's unmistakable. There is no, I did this, I did that, I thought this, I chose this. It is, He saved me by His grace. And nobody says, now are you sure you did it right? Nobody who understands being saved by grace have I ever had to say, now... Did you, did you say the right things? Did you, did, how, tell me about the background. How did you do it? I praise the Lord with them. Why? Because only a true believer is going to talk that way. Only a person who's truly in Christ is going to give all the credit and all the glory to God because he knows his own wickedness. Man, go out there and try to tell somebody they're a wicked sinner and you are the bad guy. Why are you the bad guy? Because they have a mind that's anti-God, anti-law. Man does not want to be told what to do. See, in order to believe that man's will or man can choose for himself means that man's will has to be neutral. It was neutral when it was created and it's neutral after the fall. But the Bible teaches that man was created holy. That's what we've been talking about. And now he's fallen. He's fallen in all of those faculties. Man didn't somehow fall and yet remained untouched. In other words, we understand that the will is not free in that purest sense because it's still subject to the bondage and the chains of sin, just like every other part of man. Because there's a lot of people that like to say, all right, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you that the mind's depraved. I'm going to give you that the conscience depraved. But man's will has still got to be intact so that he can choose for himself. That's where you teach and believe wrongly. Why would the will remain untouched while the mind and the conscience wasn't untouched? Because the reality is, is sin touches every part of a man. When we read verses without faith, it is impossible to please God. Natural man does not have faith. Again, talk to certain people and they will tell you, well, faith is man's choice. No, the Bible says faith is a gift of God. That means God gives me faith. So what, is that, what does that verse mean? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Since natural man doesn't have faith, it's impossible that he can please God. That's what it means. In his natural state, he doesn't have what he needs to please God. So finally... Man still has affection and he still has emotions. Some people teach, well, total depravity means you're just, you have no feelings. 
No, he has affections, he has emotions. But man in his own state, wrong things make him happy. And wrong things make him sad. His emotions don't lead him closer to God. His emotions lead him away from God. That's why you hear us say, be careful about letting your emotions lead you. There's nothing that will fool you more than your emotions. Your emotions will lead you to make choices you thought I'd never make. Because that emotion, again, this does not teach us that don't have emotions. Because emotions are a gift of God. But don't let your emotions make your decisions in anything. I have watched people ruin their lives over an emotional decision. Now, the problem wasn't with God giving you the gift of emotions. The problem is, is that in our nature, our emotions lead us to make bad decisions. Or we say, I need this to make me happy. It's an amazing thing. You still see it in the life of believers. Believers sometimes go through a tragedy and instead of running to the things of God, the emotion leads them to run away from God. And suddenly, the God who saved them now, they blame God for all the problems and instead of running to Him, their emotions lead, him, lead them away from Him. The place you ought to be running to first and foremost is straight to God. But again, your affections, your emotions... As Paul wrote, there is none that seeketh after God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So we understand that man is going to object to the doctrine of depravity because they think the word total refers to the degree rather than the extent. There's a difference in the degree and the extent of something. The argument is very simple. If man's totally depraved, then why does even unbelieving people do decent things and good things? The answer is that total doesn't mean that man's as bad as he could be. It simply means that man is bad throughout his entire being. So total depravity means all of the faculties are affected. Does that make sense? I went through that kind of quick. He's not as bad as he could be. That's why... Non-believers still do good things. That's the answer to it. Total depravity doesn't mean to, the, to the, the degree, but what it's touched. Depravity touches every aspect of a man, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It touches it all. God's grace is still restraining as wicked as we see the world, we need to come to the understanding that it's not as bad as it could be. Because God, even in common grace, is still restraining man from as bad as he could be. But yet, we can still look out on society and we can still look out on man and say man is still totally depraved, but he's not as bad as he could be. There was an illustration... I'll finish with, and then we'll, we'll get some time for some questions here. He gave a pretty practical illustration. He said, take a glass of water, stir in a teaspoon of deadly poison. The whole glass of water is ruined. But it could be ruined even more. 
by adding another teaspoon of poison and another and another. However, one teaspoon spreads the poison throughout. So it is with the effects of Adam's first sin. It has poisoned the whole of human nature. But this does not mean that a particular man is as evil as he can ever become. By and by, the lost will become totally evil in degree as they are now totally depraved in extent. But there are, for the present, certain instrumentalities of God which restrain in order that life in this world might be tolerable. So when Adam sinned, he immediately became corrupt and polluted in every part of his being. He became, in essence, totally depraved. So it's the nature. To be human is found in every aspect of being a human being, right? So every aspect of humanity, the entirety of you, has been touched by sin. So there's not one corner of your physical body, spiritual body, there's not one part of it that's not been touched by sin. Condemnation is a result of the totality of that being depraved. Some people have taken the new theology that's based on philosophy. And by the way, philosophy can be very dangerous. Be careful. Even Christian philosophy can be very dangerous. Be careful that you don't let man's ideas of who God is to supersede what God's declared himself to be. I always struggled when I, in my secular degree, I always struggled with the philosophy class because I couldn't think, I, could, I had trouble thinking that way. I had trouble thinking outside of what they were looking for. And the problem was they never could say what the right answer was. They'd ask a question and there'd be 10 different answers and the professor would say, well, all those are right because it's based upon your own personal philosophy. Well, if God worked that way, we'd all be in a heap of trouble. So God's not a philosopher. God's not one that's saying, listen, I'm going to give you a philosophy and then you take it and go where you want to. But modern theologians simply say that all sin is is really a defective part. you got one part that's defective, but the rest of it's good. But you know, if one defective part goes bad, then maybe the rest of the vehicle goes bad. But the reality is the Bible doesn't say sin is just one defect. He says it causes corruption. It causes death. It's rampant. It's alive. It's multiplying. It's fierce. In other words, it's not just something that we just say, oh, right, you know what? If you want to be saved, repent or say sorry for your defect and all will be made right. If we truly understood what repentance from sin is, it would give us a better idea of actually what it is to be totally depraved. That's ultimately what's wrong with the one, two, three, repeat after me gospel is that it's treating sin as a defect that I just simply can deal with the defect, fix the defect, and the whole will be made right. But the reality is, is it's not just a defect. If you look out on in humanity and you see what human beings, restrained human beings are capable of doing. Restrained human beings are capable of doing. 
God, by showing us what we really are, what he showed Adam what he really was, he was showing Adam what his nature was capable of. It teaches us what our nature is capable of. Left to ourselves, we would be condemned. Separated from God for all of eternity. Now again, next week, we'll deal with knowing all this. Why did God permit it? Because our confession says not only did he permit it, it says God was pleased to permit it. Now you're getting into that mind-blown idea. If it's not already. God's pleased to permit it. And again, if you're not careful, the philosopher says, that makes God the author of sin. No, that's not what divine permission means. If you read the rest of the ending of that, it says, having purposed it or sin to order it to his own glory. So some reason, some way, God permitted sin so that his own glory would be seen. That's a deep well. We'll jump into that well next week. All right? All right. Let's take a few moments and...